a church that can sing that song in the midst of cancer, trials, pandemic, is a church that will overcome. We will overcome by the word of our testimony and the blood of the Lamb. We just bless God. Thank you, you guys, for leading us into God's presence. And God, right now, as we uh, sit at your feet and, and drink in your words, God, we don't want this to just be a lecture. We don't want this to just be information. God, we want your word to fall on our heart the living word, Jesus Christ, to enter our hearts and bring about the transformation that only you can bring, inside-out transformation, conforming us to the image of you, Jesus, from the inside out. For the sake of the world, Jesus, not just for our sake, for the sake of the world, would you do that this morning? In your name we pray, amen. Maybe seated. We've been looking at uh, Jesus' final night with his disciples, how he's just pouring into these guys the things that are of utmost importance to him. And John just gives us a gift uh, four or five whole chapters. Uh, giving us all the detail of Jesus coaching these guys, pastoring them, encouraging them, concluding with this final prayer. This prayer that John gives us is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the, in the text. Oftentimes, scholars call it the high priestly prayer of Jesus because what a high priest did in that day is a high priest stood in the gap and interceded on behalf of the people. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing. In fact, the place where Jesus probably is when you piece all this together, where he was for the Last Supper, they have now gone out and they're making their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, he would have to pass right through the temple, the temple courtyard to get there unless he wanted to just go way around it. And so I just see Jesus right in that temple courtyard before what he calls his father's house and interceding. Hebrews 7 says an amazing thing. It says that Jesus is our permanent high priest who is forever interceding for us. I mean, just think about what that means. That means Right now, Jesus is praying for you. And he knows what you need even more than you know what you need. And he's praying for you. And then when you add Romans 8 to, and we just got such a, a, a rich um, reading of that this morning about how all creation groans, and how we groan, we groan for that day when God is going to finally make everything right, when he's going to finally make us right. And then the next verse talks about how the spirit groans. Wordless groans on our behalf. So Christ and his spirit right now are interceding on our behalf. Um, 
One of the images that I will forever have imprinted on my mind, because as a kid, sometimes I'd walk into my parents' bedroom at night, <laughs> not going there. Um, <clears throat> my dad would be on one side of the bed on his knees, and my mom would be on the other side on her knees, praying. So to this day, when my parents say, Rod, we are praying for you, those are not just empty words. I know it. And I need it. Wednesday night, Ash Wednesday service, um, the list of prayer requests that we got from that one night, and I believe they're probably up here. Listen, Crossroads. Prayer is the ministry. And as Father, Son, Holy Spirit are, are interceding on our behalf, if they're too good not to pray all the time, then we shouldn't think we're too good not to pray all the time for each other. And if you want a window into the kind of prayers that Christ prays for us, it's right here. In John chapter 20, John chapter uh, 17, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Starting at verse 20, where Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone. He just got done praying for his disciples. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. For I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me, loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that you in order that the love that you have for me be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is Jesus' prayer. You may be seated. By the way, I forgot to mention too, in light of prayer is the ministry, Wednesday night, um, our gatherings of prayer um, have just been really special. This Wednesday, um, come and be a part of that. I love this. Jesus literally is hours. He's hours from being arrested and a few more hours from literally hanging on a cross. And he knows this. So as he is about to die, he has you and I on his mind. He's thinking about us. And think about all the things that Jesus could pray. 
But he prays for essentially one thing. And it comes to fruition in verse 21, verse 22, and verse 23. That all of them, Father, may be one. Verse 22. That they may be one. Verse 23. That they may be brought to complete unity. That's his prayer. I don't know how that hits you. I mean, if we care about making an impact on our world, and if you've been coming to Crossroads for any uh, amount of time, you, you hopefully understand the vision that we have, the big vision that we have uh, to, to go for it. To have impact locally, globally. We want to see the kingdom of heaven advance in power. But listen, we will never impact our world for Christ. We will never do anything of lasting significance if we can't wrap our minds and hearts around this prayer and live it out. Father, they may be one. I mean, think about the scope of this prayer. Jesus is praying, verse 21, verse 22, that all of us, all of us may be one. Now, Jesus knows exactly where this is going. He knows that the kingdom of heaven is about to be unleashed upon the earth. He knows that people from every tribe, culture, and race are going to be brought in. The diversity of this whole thing is going to be stunning. People from every social economic background, the richest of the rich, the poorest of the poor, everybody in between are going to be coming to Christ. And he has all of us on his mind and he is praying, Father, may they be one. May they be brought to perfect unity. May they be one, Father, as we are one. That's his prayer. And two times Jesus prays what's at stake. Verse 21 he says, so that the world would believe. Verse 23, so that the world would know. Believe and know what? God. God. Through our unity, our being one. Our witness our testimony, the believability of the gospel, the glory of the gospel will be seen in one thing, our unity. Or another way of looking at it is the oneness that we share and put on display. That is not just the result of the message. We are the message. We are the message. Unity is the message. So this begs the important question, what does Jesus mean by unity? What does he mean by oneness? What does he mean that we're brought to perfect unity? 
Well, oneness and unity to our world for the most part is uniformity. And think about all the, the, the top-down pressures, the, the institutional pressures that we feel today to be uniform. The pressure to conform and be the same, to think the same, to talk the same. This is why there are more and more controls about speech and behavior and thought. You know, Pink Floyd was already singing about this in the 70s. We don't need no education. Come on, do you guys know this song? We don't need no thought control. Hey, teacher, leave those kids alone. All right, some of you guys didn't listen to classic rock. Your loss. Listen, this is not what Jesus is going for because God loves diversity. God created diversity. Diversity is inherent to who God is. God within himself is a diversity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are not the same. They don't even have the same roles, but they're one. And so the oneness that that Jesus is praying for is not uniformity. It's not groupthink. He isn't praying that we would all be the same and just get along. What he prays is, Father, may they be one as we are one. So this oneness and unity is rooted in the oneness and the unity that is in the Trinity. And that's why this is so important to Jesus. Unity and oneness are at the heart of who God is. It's it's the essence of God. And and that's why we need to think about last week, about God being a trinity. And I admit that this idea of God being a trinity is one of the most confusing beliefs about God. But at the same time, it's one of the most stunningly beautiful and glorious beliefs that we have about God, that God is is one being, yet he's three persons. Or as we talked about last week, he is three-dimensional, where each dimension is so uniquely and utterly perfect that it forms its own distinct person. And then the relationship of each dimension to the other is also so utterly perfect, so unified is this relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we can say three persons, but one God. Just let your mind reflect on that. This unity among these three persons is so perfect. One God. And we also learned last week that the, that the inner life of God then is, is, is relationship. It's explosive relationship that they are a family, a community, not seeking their own glory, but they're selflessly bringing glory to one another. They delight in and they adore, they pour love, infinite amounts of love into the other. And this has been going on throughout all eternity in the Trinity. And the end result of this, this kind of relationship will always be oneness, unity, perfect unity. And see, this is why division, 
I don't care what form it comes in. Racism, sexism, classism violate the essence of God. These things literally break his heart because they betray who God is. He's one. And this is why Jesus is praying one thing. And listen to how he prays it for us. Verse 21, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they be in us. Verse 22, and that glory, that, that, that selfless adoration and praise that you pour into me, Father, I have poured that glory into them and may this cause them to be one as we are one. Verse 23, I in them, you and me, that is how they will be brought to complete unity. Verse 24, that they may be with me where I am. May they see the glory that you flood me with and the oceans of love that is behind this glory. In verse 26, may they know how much you love them, that you love them as much as you love me. See, this is why if all we do is run after unity and oneness, divorced from God, it will fail. It will be this human-centered, human-engineered, human-contrived, human-coerced thing producing at best outside-in uniformity. Look at our world. That's what our world's trying to do. It's trying so hard. But listen to what acts. Listen to how it describes these first Christian communities. First from Acts chapter 2. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread together in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. They were together. They had all things in common. And they had the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Go to two chapters later, to Acts chapter four. And the believers were of one mind and one heart. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was upon them. Listen to this. And there was not a needy person among them. For from, the, for from time to time, those who ate at Starbucks gave up their Starbucks for a week. No. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them 
and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. This is the kind of movement that Jesus ignited. And he ignited it in a world that was obsessed with status where everyone knew their rank and your worth was according to your rank. It was a world that was racist, sexist, where one out of four people was a slave. It was a world that was selfishly obsessed with itself. It was materialistic. And these kind of communities were birthed all over the ancient world, characterized by transparency, like Mo this morning, sharing their guts, humility, radical generosity, not a needy person among them. Communities that didn't recognize rank or status, they didn't put price tags or labels on people and their devotion to one another, their intense love for one another, their quality of relationship. The world had never seen anything like this. As Galatians 3.28 says, there is no Jew or Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, for we are all one in Jesus Christ. The church shattered racism. It shattered classism and sexism. And their doors, their arms were open wide to the world, to the broken, to the outcast, to the slave, to the least of these. And they welcomed everybody in, his brothers and sisters. And as a result, they profoundly changed their world for Jesus Christ. Because they knew the prayer of John 17 and they lived it. Does anybody long for this? Is anybody's heart right now just saying, God, do it again? Now listen, it wasn't all roses for the early church. Read Paul's letter, his first letter to, to the church in Corinth. First two chapters. This church is just divided and, and the division is ugly. Uh, chapters eight through 10, uh, he's, he has to talk about what it is that's dividing them and address it. This is why I had you read Romans 14 because the church in Rome uh, had tons of division in it. You see in Galatians and in other parts of the New Testament that there was even division between Paul and Peter on some matters. I mean, Paul said to Peter, I had to oppose him face to face. Now, a lot of the division in, in the early church was, was over things that we look at today and we just have a hard time understanding like what's going on. Uh, because in the first century, their division was over a simple thing like food. I mean, you 
Think about this for a moment. The, the church quickly expands outside its Jewish world. It, it goes to places like Corinth and even Rome. So Greeks and Romans are now coming to Christ. They join these house churches. And hospitality 101 in the ancient world is that when you brought someone into your home, you lavished them with good food. Well, Jews have God's word in their heart, and, and, and that word forbids them to eat anything that's unkosher or unclean. So they can't eat pork, they can't eat bacon, they can't eat shrimp, they can't eat lobster. They also can't eat meat with dairy. So they can eat a burger, but they can't have a cheeseburger. So what do you do when you're at your house church and the host comes out with a plate of cheeseburgers? And the people around you start eating. And then you look across the room and your spouse is eating a cheeseburger. <laughs> Worse yet, my pastor. Or what if you're a Greek and you're a Roman and you know that the meat in that day was offered to a pagan god and then processed and sold in the temple as most of the meat was. And maybe you find out that this meat was offered to Aphrodite and you were once a temple prostitute in that temple and you saw and experienced dark things that you couldn't even speak about. And now you're disturbed that everybody's eating the meat that was dedicated to that God. This is the background to the things Paul talks about in, in 1 Corinthians, the background to Romans 14. And I don't want to say a lot now about Romans 14 because I want a church who studies the text for themselves and learns it and wrestles with it. But I'll at least say this. Paul in Romans 14 is not placing a strict mandate on the church and saying, church, this is the food that you should eat and can eat, and this is the food that you can't eat. He doesn't do that. He calls them to be true to their own conscience and to allow other people, brothers and sisters, God's people to be true to their own conscience, even if it's different than your conscience. Did you hear that? Because then Paul delivers his stinger. Stop destroying the work of God for the sake of food. Because Paul says that's what you're doing when you despise each other, when you judge each other, when you think you're right and everybody needs to think like you. He says that's killing the work of God. Because what is the work of God? Father, that they may be one as we are one and that they may be brought to complete unity. That's the work of God. That's why when a few people asked me last week in light of my announcement, they said, did you just tell me to leave Crossroads? And this is my answer to them. If you find yourself in a place 
where you look around and you are despising your brothers and sisters and your heart is judging them and your mouth is slandering them. You better believe I said you need to leave Crossroads because I cannot have the work of God destroyed here. Unity is that important. The New Testament says that we are literally Christ's body incarnated on earth. When we tear each other apart or are torn apart by someone's words, we are literally tearing Christ apart. And we are betraying the oneness of God. We are violating the essence of this family of Father, Son, and Spirit who throughout all eternity have been selflessly seeking not their own glory, but the glory of others. Uh, they don't demand love or, or take love, but they freely give it who throughout all eternity have been pouring infinite amounts of love into the other. And what does this result in? Oneness, perfect unity. And how dare we divide that or destroy that when we are called to be that? I hate it when I do this. Just keep thinking about what I just said, okay? Man, where am I? <laughs> this is like I'm in a dream, one of my worst nightmares at night, right now. Do you know that we have been invited into God? Do you know that we've been invited to participate in the unity of the Trinity? Do you know that we're invited to, to share what, what Father and Son and Holy Spirit have been sharing with each other? That we are invited to share that? That we, that we are invited to experience that joy? That, that we are invited into to, to know this? participate in it and out of this to reflect it, to reflect this God, to, to live out this, this perfect unity, this, this perfect oneness that is in the Trinity in a way that brings glory to God. And see, this is why, why Paul, when you're studying Romans 14, he, he's going to say it, it, the, the issue is not if we eat meat. The issue is not if we voted for this person or voted for that person, it's not if we wear a mask or, or don't wear a mask that matters. The bigger issue at stake is do we reflect this God? Do we love each other, believe in each other, believe the best about each other? Do we selflessly defer to each other? Do we adore each other in a way that reflects the community of the Trinity? Listen, I don't want to reduce this to, to, to meat and, and, and masks. 
This is why we can, we, we, we can why we should actually be preoccupied with, with other people and, and not just preoccupied with ourselves. This is why we, we, we love other people, not for our sake, but for their sake. This is why we live to exalt others and encourage others and serve others, even if it comes at great cost to ourselves. This is why we can stay in a bad marriage because marriage isn't about me and my happiness. Marriage is about me making someone else happy. This is why we can lose. This is why we can be last. This is why we can be on the bottom. This is why we can live small. This is why we can become of no reputation because look at Jesus. He became all these things. He's been all of these things. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been all of these things throughout all eternity. I mean, think about even when there maybe was a little division in the Trinity. You're like, oh no, where's Rod going now? <laughs> I think there was a little collision of wills going on. When Jesus prays, Father, take this cup from me. It's gonna be his next prayer in a matter of hours in Gethsemane. In hours of, of agonizing prayer, of sweating drops of blood, do I have to do this? And then finally, Jesus prays, Father, not my will, but your will be done. In that moment, he gave up all his rights and he, he humbly surrendered his will to the will of his father. Does this describe us? Is this who we are? In a world where Everyone's claiming their rights. My rights as a man, my rights as a woman, my rights as an American. And here Jesus just, he gives up all his rights and just surrenders his will. And Paul says in Philippians 2, we're to have this attitude, and attitude is more than mind. It's mind and heart. We are to have this mind, this heart, the attitude of Christ. And the question is, how do we get this attitude? We can't manufacture it. We can't do this through our own strength and resources. Just like we can't do unity. We can't do oneness apart from God. Jesus just said it over and over again to his disciples. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And the branch calls them branches. You must remain in the vine to bear fruit. Look at this little thread in Jesus' prayer. Verse 21, that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 22, 23, that the world may know that you sent me. Verse 25, that these may know that you sent me. <laughs> Don't think of Jesus as just born like, like we celebrate around Christmas. Prophets, great teachers, moral examples are born. Jesus was sent. 
He left the Father, he left home, he crossed all worlds, and he came to earth, and he didn't do this to just give us a religious manual or a how-to on how to be a good person. Instead, as he says over and over again, especially in John's gospel, he came to show us the Father so that we might know the Father and be in him, be in them. And that's our biggest need right now. Even in light of us fighting to be one and and, and fighting for unity, the biggest need for us right now is to know the Father. It's to be where Jesus is in the family of the Trinity. Our hearts were made for this. As C.S. Lewis says in The Weight of Glory, he says the inconsolable secret in every one of us, the secret that hurts so much, the ache that we all feel is nothing more than our longing to be reunited with something in the universe, we all now feel cut off. The longing to be on the inside of some door, which we've always seen from the outside. He says, this longing is no pathological fantasy. It's the truest index of our real situation. The sense that in this universe, we are estranged and that some chasm yawns between us and that reality. And this inconsolable secret of every soul is that the door on which we've been knocking all of our lives will open at last. And C.S. Lewis is right. The ache that we feel, and there is an ache It's not for more money, it's not for more stuff, it's not for more friends, it's not for more likes, it's not for more recognition. The ache in the human heart is the ache for God. It's to know the love of the Father. The inconsolable longing of every soul is to get back into the Trinity. And Jesus was sent He was sent for this because we are hopelessly lost. And Jesus was sent to find us, to retrieve us, to bring us back. He literally gets in our skin. He gets in our flesh to show us the way back into God. And he reopens the door. And he invites us in. And look at what it cost him. And just ask yourself, why? Why did they just give up on us? Because they love us. And they desperately, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they desperately want us back. That's why verse 24, Jesus says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me. To be with me where I am. Are you with them? Can you say today that Jesus has found you and that you are where he is? 
And I, I, I love this little detail that, that John gives us about this last night with Jesus. How during this whole meal, he just, he rested his head on Jesus' heart. And we've talked about this. John is probably the youngest, youngest disciple. He's, he, he's probably a young teenager. And I just think about what that must have been. I mean, what a place of security, uh, just the strength of, of, of having your, your head resting on Jesus' heart. Listen, I, I, I don't just let anyone rest on my heart. <laughs> um, maybe my wife, I'm kidding. My wife definitely gets to rest her head here. Um, my kids don't want to anymore. They're definitely invited. Um, they did as when they were younger. <laughs> But we have been made to recline like John at the heart of God. In John chapter 1, John says that Jesus left his father's side. It's, it's the same word there uh, for heart. It's Jesus left that. Why did he do that? So we could have it. He became nothing so that we could become like him. He gave up everything so that we could have the infinite amounts of love and glory and joy and delight that there is in God. Again, I ask, have you been found? Do you know this life where your head is rested at your father's heart and all the love that flows that the Father loves you, delights in you, in the same way he loves and delights in his own son. That's what Jesus is praying, that we would know that. Not just for our sake, but for the sake of the world. Because the proof to our world that God is real is the way we treat each other, forgive each other, serve each other, praise each other, love one another. That is what is going to tell our world that there's a God and he's real. And we cannot offer something that we don't already have. That's why when Jesus prays, the love that you have for me, Father, may it be in them. Because until we know this love, we will never be able to offer it, either to each other or to the world. Until we know the delight and, and the glory and the praise and the, the adoration and the oneness of the Trinity, we will never be able to offer that to the world. We'll never be able to be that. So crossroads in a world that has never been more disunified, at least in my lifetime, and so divided. This church is going to fight for unity. Not for our sake, but for the sake of the world. Are you a person who brings peace or are you a person that brings division?
Only you can answer that. Have you been found? Have you been invited in? God, may we be one as you are one for the sake of the world, for the cause of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.